the National Archives podcast series, GIs and POWs, Q in the Second World War, presented by Christopher May. This podcast is part of the special series, The Second World War in Focus, marking the 70th anniversary of the outbreak of war. This talk's called GIs and POWs, Q in the Second World War. In fact, it is about the site and what happened a little bit before, a little bit after, but concentrating on how it was during the Second World War. Uh, this is just quickly to show you how it started as market gardens, then the Ministry of Labour came there, then during the war the British Army used it, and then the Americans came, briefly the RAF were here, a couple of RAF men, uh, then the Italian prisoners of war came, then Briefly, there were German prisoners of war, then there were government officers, and then the PRO National Archives come. During the war, it seemed quite a good site for government offices. And so uh, the government, uh, the Ministry of Labour, who uh, had a new insurance office and wanted to centralise the office, because it was uh, scattered uh, in eight different sites, uh, they wanted to centralise the office, and so they decided to build a, a site to handle the new unemployment insurance. Uh, they bought land from two landowners, and then they swapped a bit of land with Kew Gardens to make a nice site. They also bought the cauliflowers, which were growing there, which caused much excitement for the treasury, and indeed they bought the manure. The offices were a one-storey complex, a great big rabbit warren of a one-storey complex uh, put up pretty quickly in 14 weeks. They had 500 people doing it. Half of it was built for just under £50,000. It had two huge rooms, one which was the ledger room, which they said was the biggest room in London at the time. It wasn't a, an elaborate building. It was a strong building, and it was meant to be permanent, but it wasn't uh, elaborate. It was built during the war. It had modern conveniences, like electric light, for example. Uh, it also had heating with two layers of pipes of heating, and it had kitchens, etc. There were actually 3,000 people working at the site, a few more men than women, but roughly half and half. Naturally, the men have the top posts. There was a very vibrant community. They had lots and lots of clubs, uh, which were dutifully recorded in Crow Pie, their magazine. And yet, although it was really lively, it seems. And people actually said it was much better than offices in London. Lots of drama clubs and things like that, and music and walks and all kinds of things. But one wonders how much uh, effect they had on Q. Uh, there were 3,000. That's more than anyone else. More than the Americans, more than the Italians, more than people after the war. Certainly more than the National Archives, who would have 600 people working here. But did they really have any effect on Q? One wonders. Uh, obviously for the shops it was useful, but most of them lived... Uh, elsewhere in London, and uh, their focus was elsewhere. Their focus was family and friends. When the Americans and the Italians come, they lived there. Hundreds of rooms. People who worked there at the time and people who worked there later said it was a nightmare. Uh, the Americans said it normally took you at least two days to find out where you were sleeping. The war came and they just simply closed the office in October, just, just a few weeks after the start of the war, they just simply closed the office. Uh, they then had second thoughts, and in January of the following year, in fact, they reopened it on a much smaller scale in Acton. 
uh, but the site was then emptied. And it seemed to have been used by the British Army for various purposes. Some soldiers were certainly there uh, who were guarding the railway bridge. The Americans then came after the America had joined the war. And there were actually various groups who came and went for a short time. But one group was there for the whole time. And that was the 660th Engineer Topographic Battalion. Now that was about 950 men. They came in different ways. The B Company came first in September, then the C Company came in December, then A Company and Headquarters Company came about a year later in August in 1943. What they were doing was making maps. And the three companies, the Headquarters Company that ran the administration, organization, transport and things like that. Survey Company were surveying land and they lived at Kew, but they actually trained outside. They went to find places that looked like France um, throughout, and then they trained there. The photo mapping company, who actually made the maps, were stationed here all the time. And they were the biggest company, some 350 men. Uh, and then there was C Company, which was most of the time, or at least part of the time, in Cheltenham. And they actually did the printing. They were called reproduction. Basically, the problem of how you make a map was traditionally you made it by you sent people out and they surveyed and they made trig points and they took spot heights and they measured. And then they came back and you put it on a map. Now there was a problem for the Americans. Uh, they were making maps of France. Northern France was occupied by the Germans, so they couldn't survey it. But the techniques had been developed in which they took aerial photographs and you made maps from aerial photographs. What they did was they would send out planes which would take photographs and would crisscross the area. They would then come back and using some high-tech equipment such as the multiplex stereoscopic plotter and which, of which they were extremely proud. Um, it was an American device, better than the English one, uh, and other technology and using a lot of time and skill and patience, uh, you could make a map. They made lots of maps of the whole of northern France. They also made some rather detailed maps. One lot of detailed maps were from, of 24 towns for bombing, and very, very detailed maps of bombing. And then something else they made which was very rather difficult was making maps of, of airfields because you needed to have it, had to get very uh, close contours for that. In addition to that, they made models. Um, they made models of the Barnstable area for an exercise. They made a couple of other hypothetical models. And then they made a crucial model for Omaha Beach for the D-Day landings. It was sent for reproduction and using the latest machines. They produced huge amounts. They were working hard, particularly as D-Day approached. They were working eight-hour shifts, six days a week. And they produced huge numbers of impressions in one month, they managed to produce 8 million. This is with the area where they made the maps. They covered the whole of, well, basically northern France. They came from all over the United States, and they were concentrated in New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. They came from the Mid-Atlantic and the Midwest, i.e. the great industrial areas, which is not surprising considering they were technical. What did they do before? Well, only a few of them had been made maps. Three of them had actually made maps before. 17 had been in the army. They were civilians. And this was very much the American army. The American army didn't have an army before. It was smaller than the 
Dutch army, wasn't it, I think? I mean, it was a tiny army. They had the commanding officer was a West Pointer. There was a private who'd been in the army since 1926. Uh, but apart from that, they were mostly civilians. Some of them had been what, what I'd call design jobs, things like draftsmen, engineers, architects, things like that. Some of them had been students, but most of them were all kinds of things. I mean, I just random selected a few morticians, golf pros, uh, hosiery salesmen, supermarket managers, etc. They were, they were different. They, they had nicknames, and we know some of the nicknames. Uh, the most common nickname was just simply names, so Caps was called, was Kapinski. Other names were where they came from, things like um, Scotty or Greaseball or the Rebel, or indeed their physical features, Porco or Porky, Stumpy, Tiny, Rabbit, and then about the age, things like that, and then also certain sporting triumphs, and then indeed uh, other things which they were good at, like the Hoofer, the Sponge, or Bing, and then there are others which you can probably guess. I mean, I think I can guess why Stinky was called Stinky. While they were there, those things were serious. The Blitz came, the second Blitz in 1944, and then on August the 27th, they were hit by a doodlebug, a buzz bomb, a flying bomb, a V1. And three people were hit, were killed. I can only find out the name of two for some reason. They don't record the name of the third. Lieutenant Cayley, it was hit the guard room, and he was the guard officer at the time. It was 6.44 in the morning. He was climbing out the window, and he got hit. Somebody else was asleep. The guards were mostly, or a number of them were asleep, and uh, most of them got under their beds because when the alarm went off, uh, but one didn't, and he got killed. Sergeant Bortram was having his, um, uh, having his breakfast. It was 6.44, and... Uh, heating pipes of which the Ministry of Labour was so proud, fell down and killed him. But because it was such a big building, they could go on working. Not merely a V1, but also next door a V2, a rocket hit one of the, about the six rocket hit the works. The Americans were very proud, and this came right down from the top, from Eisenhower and Marshall. They were determined that the Americans would have good welfare. So sports, all kinds of sports were organised, all kinds of clubs, entertainment. Joe Louie came down and did an exhibition fight at, in Teddington and then came across and saw the camp. They had all kinds of entertainment. Uh, there was a club, uh, the American Red Cross set up a club at the Trumpeter's House in Richmond. They had a busy time and it was deliberate. Uh, they, they were well looked after, they were relatively well paid, uh, they had good food, they had the best of everything. And that was deliberate. However, there were things about army life which they hated. Uh, what they called chicken, or chicken shit. This was things like inspection, guard room, guard duties, physical training, rifle training. They couldn't understand this, but this again also came down right from the top, from Marshall and Eisenhower were determined that this army would be an army. They didn't really enjoy it very much. They also had, there was a naffy, which was provided, provided by the British. And Miss Cox and her team uh, provided the NAFI. And this is where they met British regularly, directly. And sometimes there were different expectations. Miss Cox told after the war of how one day she, uh, they all came in for a break and they were causing chaos and their girls, her girls couldn't serve the people at the back. 
so she shouted to them, get in line, at which they went berserk. They shouted, we are not limeys. And she said, right, if you don't get in the line, I'll close the shutters and I'm not going to serve you, uh, which she did. And there were boos and catcalls and chaos. And then it gradually went quiet. And she looked round and she opened the shutter and there they were, all in line, like limeys. <coughs> the Yanks were generous, particularly to children, and they set up this Christmas party. Uh, the Christmas party, 300 children, 300 orphans, i.e. whose fathers were away, or, or indeed were, were, were killed, or prisoners of war. Um, and uh, this was a, a great success. Uh, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Games, uh, films, and of course, food, jelly, um, ice cream. And Miss Lee, who was the head of uh, Vineyard Infants, wrote this little poem about it. Hurrah for the US forces. Uh, we met in the building at Kew, who gave us the loveliest party we in peacetime or war ever knew. At the end, the mayor said to the children, you will always remember this party. Thank you very much. And they always do. They started to mix with uh, what they called limeys. They went to Richmond. They went to houses. They were uh, welcomed. 300 of them were welcomed at Christmas into different houses. Uh, where they were very well received. However, the pub they really liked was the boathouse because it was the closest, you could actually get there in the blackout, and it also had a band and dancing. They explained that actually the English girls, they danced a little differently, and they, had to do, they did the waltz and they did uh, the quick step, but they had their own adaptation of the jit for fast numbers. But after a few dances, they were attempting the jitterbug. American fashion. Anyway, by D-Day, most of England was jitterbugging. So th they had advantages. They were rich. They had smart uniforms. They had different uniforms as opposed to English soldiery who had to make do. Uh, they had different uniforms for walking out. They were fun. And they had access to certain kinds of things like nail varnish, perfumes, etc., which they went to the PX to get their shack up rations. <laughs> And so the result, anyhow, was, and then they had marriages. Of the core people who were in B Company, it was said that one in five actually married English girls. Actually, the American forces didn't really like the marriages. You had to ask permission of your CO, and you had to wait a month, uh, because the Americans were convinced that English girls were trying to grab their boys and trying to get into America. Other things were, they had lots of things, and they... Sometimes shared them, and sometimes they sold them. In this particular case, there was part of this site was used by the Ministry of Works. Also, part of it was used by the post office for a, a store. Quite a big part was the post office. But this plumber worked in, who came from Bushwood. Uh, he worked in the Ministry of, next to, right next to the kitchens. And they kept on offering him food. And one day when his wife was ill, uh, he bought a chicken. And then after that, he bought more and more things. And in the end, they were literally throwing the stuff in through the window. Literally. He said there was a great man who looked like Primo Canera, the great heavyweight. And he chucked this huge, great, all these tins of, huge tins of corned beef in. And when he'd arrested, he had 19 tins of sausage wheat, three tins of spam, 10 pounds of bacon, two ham, six tins of salmon, eight pounds of cherry jam, and 15 tins of corned beef. There were other things that they were worried about the American authorities, uh, such as 
Well, they were worried, to be honest, about VD. Very worried, because they didn't want their soldiers to go down sit with VD and not fight. It was, I mean, how can I put this delicately? I mean, there was a certain amount of fairly casual relations. Indeed, I mean, one of the good things for kids was, if you went down the towpath, there were balloons everywhere. <laughs> balloons. And you could take them home and you could put them in the bath and they'd float. I mean, it was great. Anyhow, they left. And going off to France, uh, they go over a period of time, and Betty Coldman, who worked in rights in the, the gramophone record department in rights, who knew the, the Americans, who said how nice and generous and gentlemanly they were, she said, just recently, she was almost at a loss for words. She said, Richmond was empty. We all said, isn't it awful? And so they left, some came back, uh, friendships were formed, some marriages took place, some came back on furlough. But then the RAF came. Uh, the RAF came just for a couple of months. Uh, basically, they were clearing bomb sites, and it was just a handful of people, really. So the site was empty, and it was decided to put in Italians. Now, the Italians in 1943, Italian history is some, somewhat complicated, I have to say. Mussolini was overthrown, the Italian government becomes co-belligerents, and then after a bit, the um, British government decides that they can use the uh, Italian prisoners for things that they're not allowed to use under the Geneva Convention. And they can give them a special status if, if they want to, if they volunteer. They were called cooperators, not collaborators. They could remain prisoners of war, but they could have battle dress. Now they were allowed to have a spruce green battle dress, which was distinctive, and it had Italy on its shoulder. They were given better pay, and they were even paid some real money, and they could send some of it home. They were allowed out. They could go within five miles. They could go anywhere in five miles. Uh, they could talk to anyone. Before, they could only talk to their employer. Uh, they could talk to anyone, and if invited, they could go actually go into British homes. They could go into shops and cinemas, but they weren't allowed in pubs or dance halls. They were not allowed to marry, and they were not allowed to have establish or attempt to establish relations of an amorous or sexual character. The people who came were the number 144 Italian Labour Battalion. It was the number 144 Italian Labour Camp. The battalion started in 1945, January, and they were there well after the war. Until July 1946, they'd all left. Their job was an important job. They were repairing bomb damage. And there were 2,300 Italians and 23 British guards, because ultimately they ran the camp. The Italians ran the camp. So they didn't need to have huge numbers of guards. And anyhow, they could come and go. They, could, they were allowed out there. The people who ran the camp, including Colonel Hobby. Colonel Hobby was a member of the Yorkshire Regiment. As a lieutenant, he'd won the MC in the First World War. Uh, he'd then become a flying officer in the RAF. He'd been seconded to the RAF. And now he was of a certain age, and so this was the kind of job they gave older soldiers to do. Um, but as I say, it was the Italians who basically ran the camp. But there were a lot of them. They packed them in. I mean, it said 2,300 was the figure in July 1945. At other times, there were different numbers. It was a lot of people. Their work was bomb damage. This was important work. And they did it over a large, large area. I, th I think, I'm not quite sure how far they went, but I think basically all over London. And so they actually, in order they didn't have to come home every day, or come home, come back to the camp every day, uh, they went out, they had established these different outposts. The work, the work itself, as I say, was bomb damage. It could indeed be dangerous. Obviously, you were on building sites which were not uh, 
on bomb sites. It could, could be dangerous. It also could be dangerous, as was found in July 1945, just after lunch. It was decided a group of them were going to take the rubble back down to Ham, and they set off from the camp, and they were going down to Ham, which is full of, full of still, I may say, full of the rubble of the, of the Blitzes. As they, they went out of Ruskin Avenue, turned left into Mortlake Road, and there are two British soldiers inside uh, in the cab, and then on top of the rubble are three Italian soldiers. A coal cart appears, coming wobbling, and uh, the driver tries to swerve and avoid them, and just at the corner of Hyde Park Row, hits a tree and a lamppost. One of the Italians managed to jump off, the other two fall off and are killed. Lorenzo Pomigiani and Felici Di Fabio. La pasta, I'm pleased to say, was made by Italians, which was lucky for them. And then they were able to do various trades, being carpenters, barbers, and cobblers. And then to liven the place up, there were the seven dwarves uh, with Maestro Aldo Morbido on accordion. And also they had the radiophonic unit with amplifiers all over the camp. To make the place a little bit more exciting, Various pictures were painted, I think probably by Mario Finazzi, of mythological subjects. It looks as though, in a sense, that the Italians were really having a pretty good time, you know, f and full employment. In fact, they didn't. They had nothing to do. There were no recreation facilities, none. So they, were, they had a problem. They really had a problem. They were allowed out between 7 and 10, and they, what did they do? Well, the answer was that they wandered down to Kew Green as the police put it, to beguile themselves by watching the traffic, the boat traffic on the Thames and games on Kew Green. In some ways, back for the Italians, this was a bit more normal. It was what happens in Italian towns. It's called the Passeggiata, which is the evening parade when everybody wanders up and down the main street. Not quite the same, because, of course, it was just men, but uh, it was... But nonetheless, they really didn't have anything to do. They were pretty much bored out of their minds. So the local church decided to set up a club. This was a club in which they managed to get a couple of hundred people sometimes. A couple of hundred Italians came to the club. It was very successful. They ran it for nearly a year, and just under about nine months. And it was a weekly club, and they could do things like just play cards and look at magazines and listen to the, listen to the band, actually, the orchestra. Some people found this absolutely despicable. But some people made friendships, particularly the local chemist, the chemist on Kew Green, Mr. Thomas, and he actually really ran the club. And he also, as was encouraged by the vicar, invited people to the homes. And he made some real genuine friendships. And they wrote back letters, rather touching letters, saying thank you. And he managed to, he kept in touch with many, uh, right up until his, almost until his death, I think. So what happened seems to have been that people who, who knew the Italians liked them. People who didn't know the Italians perhaps felt suspicious, even hostile. And they were perhaps the majority. The Italians also had another problem. The problem was girls. They liked them. And they wanted uh, to talk to them. And indeed, they wanted to establish relations of an amorous and sexual character. But it was difficult. Now, the Americans had advantages. The Americans were rich. The Americans had smart uniforms. The Americans were glamorous. The Americans were allies. The Americans could speak English. The Italians were poor. They had no money at all. They, had scruff they were scruffy, and everybody said they were scruffy. They couldn't speak English. They were the enemy, and they were despised. 
So what did they have to rely on? Well, they only had two things, or possibly three. Charm and chance. They used them both to the full. Charm and chance, or possibly charm and cheek. It depended on your point of view. Some people were really rather touched. For instance, Moira Grinberg, who now lives in America, lived in Defoe Avenue, wrote and explained she had an allotment just next door, and her toolbox was just next to the fencing, and uh, they were told not to talk to them, but she thought they were fellow human beings. And they tried to talk to her, and then they got whistled away. And then one morning, it was quiet in their compound. I opened my box and found a small heap of crumpled papers, love letters in broken English, drawings of me and my flowers. Not everybody felt the same way. For example, the war, the war office received this letter. It is not safe for any decent woman to be on the highway after dark for fear of molestation in some form or other from these men. For instance, yesterday evening, a lady, while proceeding from Kew Gardens Railway Station to Mays Road, was accosted by eight of these Italians who attempted to get into conversation with her. You must agree this is a terrifying experience. Furthermore, I have information this kind of behavior is indulged in by these men throughout the immediate neighborhood. In many cases, their general conduct is both beastly and degrading to the extreme. The police investigated some of these letters and had a look. So there was a complaint about disgusting behavior of Italians and <coughs> molestation of women and girls. And a self-appointed group wrote saying, what is being done to control these uninvited and extremely ill-behaved men? So they investigated. This is what the inspector wrote. I'm quite satisfied that to say that women and girls are molested is a gross exaggeration. Some prisoners do smile at women when they receive encouragement. And then he goes on. And there is no doubt that women do run after these prisoners. The girls who are more than willing parties come from all parts of London to meet and associate with them. In a way, I think as if we look at what was may we call it the sexual jungle of Q during the war. Uh, the question is, who was the predator and who was the prey? Who was chasing who? For the Italians, clearly, the scarce resource was women. But really, the scarce resource was men. The soldiery, however, did not like this. And many English men did not like this. Uh, news reached a boat, a naval ship, in the Far East and that there was a club being set up for the Italians. And they wrote back a scorching letter to the Richmond Herald. And it mentioned their smoldering contempt for the Italians. And then they really get down to what they're bothered about. Perhaps the worthy young women of Richmond, whose main interests have been in a spacious building at the bottom of Ruskin Avenue since December 1949, will find this club a new center of interest and attraction enhanced by a completely new array of foreign uniforms. <laughs> and uh, perhaps their anxieties come out a little. Indeed, throughout the war, Richmond girls have given their own countrymen the cold shoulder. If a man wore a uniform which was not British, he was the cat's whiskers to them. Is fraternization going to be carried to the extent where our infatuated local girls may throw themselves en masse at our late enemies? Are any steps to be taken to prevent such an occurrence? Actually, then things did start going wrong. Well, it seemed things were going wrong. Uh, and indeed, there were what were called brawls, the brawls on, uh, on the Kew towpath. 
And this is, I would just say, the first incident on Thursday, the 28th of June, uh, in which Corporal Liberati explains how he is going with his friend. And naturally, he meets his sailors group. And naturally, the sailor says, any women down this road? And Corporal Pietro Liberati, at least according, according to the police, speaks perfect stage broken English, said, I see no women down this road. And the sailor says, afterwards, naturally, after a reply like that, pulls him by the sleeve and says, come on, fight. Uh, Liberati replies, I no fight, I no give trouble, you no give me trouble. The sailor says, get away, you etc. So he says, okay, and starts to move off. And then the civilian grabs him and says, come on, fight. Liberati demurs and says, me no fight, me go campo. However, the fight begins, and then there is a great fight. Everybody joins in. It goes up and down the stairs. It goes up and down the towpath. Were there knives? Mm, well, who knows? Certainly, the English admitted that they naturally, I mean, as you would, uh, bottled up and went into their boathouse to grab the bottles and the glasses so they could fight properly in the British manner. In the end, actually, this, uh, was there a bayonet? Possibly not. Uh, but two people got stabbed, one, Eng one English soldier and one of the Italians. They go off to hospital. Not too serious. They weren't dangerously uh, injured. The police come. It's, it, it's over in basically a few minutes. It's a minor fracas. They're not really bothered. However, on Sunday, they get bothered. On the following Sunday, another fight near the boathouse. Uh, Mrs. Kane, the, the landlady at the boathouse, calls the police. They come down. They bring down, there are 11 of them, they come down quite a lot in a couple of cars because uh, of the previous fight. But by the time they're there, everything seems to be okay, it's trouble over. The Italians talk through the translator, the Italians say, because the camp guards have come by this time, uh, and uh, the Italian camp police uh, say that there's some boys set off a firework and some of the Italians thought it was the police, and, but it seems okay. And then something happens. And this is the police account. Five or six minutes, minutes later, a body of Italians, number 150 to 200, some armed with sticks and pieces of iron and adopting a threatening attitude, were seen approaching Kew Bridge from the camp, ostensibly bent on following and attacking a gang of youths who had gone across Kew Bridge to the Brentford side. So there is a police cordon. The Italians remain hostile. They throw an iron bolt. Maybe. The police say they did anyhow. So the police draw their truncheons, and at the British Bobby's truncheon, naturally, all Italians are cowed, and uh, they are marshaled back uh, to the camp. But this was worrying. What was the cause? Well, as the, the police superintendent says, it appears certain people of the rough element came over from Brentford and Chiswick, and if they find these Italian prisoners talking to or fraternizing with English women, as is frequently the case, they take umbrage past hostile remarks, and this, of course, leads to trouble. Uh, that is the Billy Angel gang. He was 15, and he had his mates. Um, they were the troublemakers. But what worried the authorities was, here were, how did they get? So many Italians got together. How did they get together? They got armed. Uh, they were looking for trouble. They didn't obey the police immediately. Uh, was there going to be trouble? Well, actually, the answer was there wasn't going to be trouble. There was another minor incident again where there was basically a general fight inflamed by drink, as the police said, at the Richmond Fair. But basically, there was no other trouble. 
Really, what the Italians had on their mind was not trouble. What they had on their minds was getting home. Italy had changed sides and was an ally from 1943 in 1945 in June. By June, the war was over, and they thought, well, surely we are going to go home. However, it was suggested. People say, well, can't we start sending people home? And this went right to the top. And at the top, attitudes were robust, I think we call it now. Uh, this is what the Prime Minister suggested. Why not make a gesture? Send some Italians home. I hate gestures, which nearly always take the form of giving things away at our expense. These Italian POWs probably shot down a lot of our men and afterwards begged for their lives and have since been handsomely maintained. I dare say we should be forced into a peace with Italy by the US, and this, but this will not happen immediately. Have the Russians released all their Italian prisoners or did they kill them all and so have none? Anyway, I cannot see any the urgency. This was unfortunate for the, for the Italians. It also was important because the Italians were useful. Particularly, were you, they were doing all kinds of important jobs, like clearing bomb damage, like working on the ra working railways, emptying milk and things like that, like also agriculture. And this was particularly for the harvest. They weren't going to be let go for the harvest, and not merely the, the wheat harvest. It was particularly the potato harvest and the beet harvest, which was the Minister of Agriculture said, we have got to keep these people. Finally, uh, something happened. But in the meanwhile, people were getting... The Italians, it must have had, a, it was certainly a strain. Uh, this is not the Q camp, but another camp. A doctor writes, as you probably already know, the state of mind of the Italian prisoners has gone from bad to worse during the last few months, as their wish to repatriate has become more intense. And in a like measure, their worries and preoccupations for their families in Italy have increased with the approach of winter. My work as a doctor has been particularly painful because the number of mental cases is naturally increasing. Uh, certainly, somebody here, Carlo Trincea, committed suicide, hanged himself, although we can't say why. Uh, one prisoner certainly did a runner, escaped. The police gave a very full description of, of him. Uh, they said, he is Italian, he is 29 years old, he has dark hair, and he may have a beard. Uh, I don't know actually whether they ever caught him, but fortunately for the Italians, finally repatriation did take place. They were, from December 1945, they began it. Gradually, they repatriated people here. Then other Italians came in, came and went from other camps. And by the, the end of June, all Italians had been repatriated. The camp then was empty. until And decided, they decided they would use it for a German prisoner of war camp. Um, some German prisoners came, and they were putting barbed wire and things around because the Germans were proper prisoners of war, not cooperators. Uh, but then they changed their mind. Uh, in September, the military left. Then there are government offices. Uh, the Post Office Savings Bank was here, um, and then the Inland Revenue Sorting Office. Post they had quite a lot of people. The Post Office Savings Bank had about, about the same number as the National Archives, about 600. But in 1968, the Post Office decided to leave, so at least half the site was empty, and it suited the PRO to come. And I'm pleased to say Q welcomed the PRO. Here is a... Uh, a letter, uh, 450 people signed this. Uh, we, the undersigned, are deeply concerned that the unique environment of Kew should be preserved and all efforts made to improve its amenities. 
We therefore urge the Ministry of Environment to do all in its power to prevent the sighting of the proposed new public record office in Kew, signed by name and address various people, Damon Park and various other people down the bottom, uh, signed it uh, there. Uh, anyhow, it didn't matter. They demolished the site, a series of rather tatty buildings containing old departmental records. And then Fort Ruskin is, is made up, completed, and then finally the National Archives come and uh, there's a new extension and in 203 it is rebranded as National Archives. But it seems to me that the National Archives, as I read here, are embracing the future, preserving our past. And it seems to me that today before the embraces become too passionate, it is a good thing to think about our past, the past of this site, and to remember the GIs and the Italians who were here. This event was recorded live on the 10th of September 2009 at the National Archives, Kew.